Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting-edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and Comcast. This Ed Talks features a robust conversation on a proposal to amend the state constitution to help ensure quality education for all students. Authors of the proposal, Justice Alan Page, former Minnesota Supreme Court Justice and co-founder of the Page Education Foundation, and Neil Kashkari, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, join participants online October 21st, 2020 for this Ed Talk. Uh, I'm gonna kick off and then I'm gonna turn it over to my partner, uh, Alan Page. Uh, for some comments. I've been president of Minneapolis Fed for just under five years. And I had done my research on Minnesota, or so I thought before I moved here. What I learned was that Minnesota has a diverse economy. It has a very robust business sector. Minnesota has on average good schools, on average a highly educated workforce. Those are fundamental foundations of a very vibrant Minnesota economy. So before I got here, I assumed given those facts being true, I assume that everybody in Minnesota would be better off. That, you know, there's going to be a distribution of outcomes, but even folks at the bottom of that distribution would be doing relatively better off because the state overall is very successful in so many dimensions. So I was quite shocked when I got here and I discovered that it's not true. The good things that I talked about are true, but those good things mask huge disparities across our state economic disparities, housing disparities many different elements of racial and economic disparities in Minnesota. In many cases, they're the worst in the nation or close to the worst in the nation. And I was most surprised to discover that that's all starts with education. Minnesota has some of the worst or education disparities in the nation between uh, African-American and Latino students, for example, and indigenous students and white students and Asian students as one example, and uh, economic disparities between Lower, lower income families and middle class and higher income families. And they're statewide, they're all around the state. It's not just about the Twin Cities. So when I discovered this, I asked my researchers at the Minneapolis Fed to help me understand that. Why do those disparities exist? What has been done to close these disparities? And what has been done around the country? What can we learn by looking at other states? And what they, they taught me, what they showed me in the data was that there have been a lot of good faith attempts to close these education disparities uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. A, a lot of good work has been done. A lot of good work is being done right now by many people who are tuned into this uh, video uh, conference as an example. But if you add it all up, all of that good work, and you look at the aggregate statistics, we've made zero progress, zero progress, despite really good people doing really good work trying to make a difference. The system is just fundamentally broken. And when you look around the country, that isn't true everywhere. In the last 10, 20, 30 years, there are states that have made big progress in closing these gaps, both between middle-class kids and lower-income kids and between white children and children of color, closed these gaps, made real progress. So you know, some people will say, well, you can't close these gaps. You have to first solve poverty. First of all, that's an excuse. And it's not true. If you look around this, the country, there are other states that have closed these gaps and they too have families living in poverty. And as Alan always points out to me, if we in fact want to close poverty, it starts by improving education outcome for all of our children. Uh, education and making sure that all children get a quality education is the most powerful tool we actually have to break the cycle of poverty and to lift up families and to close gaps across many different dimensions. So about two years ago, uh, I reached out to Justice Page and I asked him, I said, look, I'm reaching out to you both because of your 22 years as a Supreme Court justice, but also because of his lifetime work on education and education equity. I asked him, is there a way that we could use the law to literally put children first and outcomes for children first? So we started looking at the constitution Minnesota's constitution has an education provision that exists there today. It was written in 1857. As a quick reminder, Adia talked about history of Minnesota. 
1857, slavery was still legal in much of America. That's when our language comes from. And it has not changed since 1857, while many other states have updated their constitutions. And our constitution today, the courts have interpreted it to say, a child in Minnesota has the right to access an adequate education system. Well, what does that mean, an adequate education system? It's a system that is, on average, adequate. It's a system that, on average, is adequate, works great for some children, and performs very poorly, underserved some children. And if your child gets access to that system, their rights have been met. Whether your child is at the top of that system receiving a great public education or a lousy education, it doesn't matter. Their rights have been met. And when we looked around the country, some states have updated that and said, no, children have the right to a quality education and all children have that, that right. So that's what Justice Page and I looked at with, our, with my colleagues at the Federal Reserve and some outside experts. What can we learn from all 50 states to modernize our constitution, to lift up the rights of all children and to literally create a civil right for all children in Minnesota to receive a quality public education? We think that this can break through political barriers that have prevented us from making fundamental changes and literally putting children first. So that's a high level overview. Let me turn it over to Justice Page to give you uh, his perspective and to walk through how we designed this and what we think it would achieve. Alan? Thank you, Neil. Um, and thank you for having us today. Let me just uh, begin by saying for me, education and educational opportunity for children, particularly for poor children and children of color is really all about justice. Whether we're talking about social justice, racial justice, health um, justice, housing justice, underlying all of that, it seems to me is education. And so educational justice, which we don't have today, seems to me to be critical. And I come to this after uh, more than 60 years of, of working with young people, uh, spending time in classrooms. I'm not an educator, but I have spent a fair amount of time in schools and classrooms across Minnesota and across the country, talking with young people about the importance of and value of uh, being well prepared, being educated in, in, in hopes that they can see uh, their futures by enhancing, uh, they can see better futures by enhancing their education. Let me just uh, walk you through the proposed amendment that we have uh, uh, set forth. But, but first, let me point out something about the current education clause in Minnesota's constitution. The current clause focuses on essentially two things, the education system and inputs into that system, how that system is financed. We think that by shifting the focus just slightly to include children, that we can have an impact on these disparities, which from my vantage point are not only um, embarrassing and unacceptable, but they're unconscionable. And so our first thought was the one thing we have to do is put children first. And we literally do that with our constitutional language. That language begins with, all children have a fundamental right to a quality public education that fully prepares them with the skills necessary for participation in the economy, our democracy and society as measured against uniform achievement standards set forth by the state. It is a paramount duty of the state 
to ensure quality public schools that fulfill this fundamental right. Now, what do we mean when we talk about all children? Well, we mean just that, whether we're talking black children, brown children, indigenous, white children, wealthy children, poor children, rural or urban, or children with disabilities, all children have a fundamental right to a quality public education. Now, as Neil pointed out, currently our constitution uh, provides for an adequate education system. And as he noted, we think that children are entitled to more than adequate. And that's why we uh, include the language quality public education. Oftentimes people ask us, well, what, how do you, how do you determine, how do you define quality public education? Well, we define it in the constitutional language with an education that fully prepares children with the skills necessary for participation. That is the definition of quality. And we also understand that it is important that that quality standard have some measure and that everybody gets measured by the same tool. That is not to suggest that um, what we have now with currently with the, the standardized testing regimens, that that is necessarily the best way to um, measure quality and whether a child is fully prepared or the education provides the child the opportunity to be fully prepared. But we think it is important so that um, one group of kids doesn't get measured one way and another group of kids gets measured a different way. Um, with respect to, it is a paramount duty of the state. That is to say, the state would have no higher duty than to ensure quality public schools. No higher duty. Now we bounced back and forth with the question of whether it should be a paramount duty or the paramount duty. And we settled on A because there are likely to be other, we're sitting here in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so there are likely to be other things that are as high a duty but we wanted to make sure with our constitutional language that uh, there would be no higher duty uh, than to ensure quality public schools. We think that by um, amending our constitution, we can actually bring about change. As Neil pointed out, over the years, there have been lots of people uh, working very hard, trying to ensure all children are educated. But whatever we've been doing hasn't been working. And part of it, I think, is um, also, as Neil pointed out, um, this con our Constitution was the current language was adopted in 1857. It should not be lost on any of us that not only was slavery uh, still rampant in much of the country, it was in 1857 that the United States Supreme Court decided Dred Scott v. Sanford, an opinion in which the uh, Chief Justice of the United States said uh, that referring to uh, those who had been, and I quote, imported, end quote, as slaves, um, noting that they had no rights which a white man was bound to respect. Our constitutional language is grounded in that time period. And the, the, the problems we face are systemic. And it seems to me that we have to have a fundamental change of the system. And we think our 
proposed constitutional language would do that. Let me add uh, one thing before, Adia, we turn it back to you and, and to questions. People have asked, well, what do words on a page matter? These are, let's say we change the words on the page. Who cares? What is it going to do? Well, words in the Constitution matter. And the biggest changes in our country's history have come, come through civil rights movement. So think about the Bill of Rights, the right to free speech, the freedom of religion. Think about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery or the amendment that followed that gave freed slaves the right to vote, or the amendment that gave women the right to vote, or the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s, or Brown versus Board of Ed, the Board of Education. You know, especially after George Floyd was killed here in Minneapolis, there's an outcry for change to finally address these terrible disparities in our state and around the country. And I, unfortunately, I keep reminding myself, I remember when Rodney King was beaten in 1991. And there was also an outcry across the country about we have to do something, we have to change this, and nothing happened. Alan and I both believe that if we, in this moment, say we're going to change the Constitution to make the state's highest priority delivering on quality public education for all children, that by putting it in the Constitution, it can lead to sustained effort, sustained pressure for systematic change to lead to better outcomes over time. So that 20 years from now, we're not having the same conversation. That's why we think this is a really big deal uh, and why we're putting a lot of energy and time behind it. So thank you for let, letting us have the microphone to give this overview. Uh, we'll turn it back to Adia and please to take your questions. Excellent, thank you so much. I'm really excited to jump into the next discussion part. Uh, thank you so much for sharing the background on the amendment. Uh, I want to introduce, or I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, if you have questions, make sure you use that Q&A button that's at the bottom of your screen. Uh, that way we'll be sure to see them. Um, we've got, a, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm juggling like 70 different windows uh, for, this, <laughs> for this event. Uh, so I want to make sure that those questions, make sure they get in there. Um, we've allocated a huge chunk of time for the conversation. So we'll get to as many as we can before we end at noon. Uh, and before we begin, I'd like to introduce my co-moderator for this portion of the, men, the event, Amanda Kunjbahari. Amanda is the Director of Public Policy at the Citizens League, which is the co-sponsor of Ed Talks, along with Achieve Minneapolis. Amanda, I'm really excited to have you here with us, um, and I can't wait to dive into the discussion. Thank you, Adia. Really excited to be here. Um, thank you all for joining us, and to Neil and Justice Page, Thank you for being here with us today. I'm very excited to jump into the Q&A. Adia, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, let's start. Uh, there was an early question uh, by Angela or Andrea Martinez. Is this constitutional and is, would this constitutional and wow, it, it's the snow, you all. I can't talk today. Um, <laughs> would this constitutional amendment impact early education as well? Yes, it would. Uh, you notice that it begins with all children, doesn't put uh, any limits. And I think Neil would uh, say that, you know, the with his 20 month old daughter, that the earlier we start working with children and getting them prepared, the better everyone will be, the more successful we will be. So it allows for work in the in the early childhood education uh, you know, one, space. One thing that by design that we didn't mention in Alan's overview of mine is we didn't want to prescribe the solution because the needs of individual children will be different. So Alan mentioned I have a 20 month old daughter and we're blessed to be able to provide for her and my wife and I are reading to her all the time. We're, you know, we've fully bought into the first thousand days of brain development and reading to your baby and doing all that. So my daughter's not going to need state support for early childhood education. But not all families are as fortunate as my family. And so instead of saying, hey, there's one size fits all for every child in Minnesota, the amendment provides the flexibility to for the state to provide what that child needs given that child's specific circumstances. 
Excellent. Thank you. Amanda, do you see another question that uh, you'd like to yeah. hear next? I'd actually like to um, go back to something you said, Neil, about the, the difference between this being, you know, why it's important that this is a constitutional amendment. And, and often I've seen in documents from the Federal Reserve online talking about this, I see the quote that this is going to put power back into, into the hands of families. Can you talk about how the amendment will actually work and how it puts the power back into families' hands? Well, let me start and then I'm going to turn it over to Alan to talk about what he calls an enforcement mechanism, which is a really important piece of this. What do we think will happen? So first of all, the House and Senate have to pass it. Then it'll go to the voters. And we believe the voters in Minnesota will overwhelmingly approve this because people in Minnesota value education. Uh, then what we believe will happen is that'll put pressure on the legislature and the governor to come together with parents, with teachers, with principals to say, how do we want to design the education system for the future? And to give them the first opportunity to make big changes to meet the needs of all the children in Minnesota for the future economy of Minnesota. But if that process doesn't work, that's where the power of families then comes in. So Alan, why don't I turn it over to you? Well, you know, we're talking about a fundamental right, a civil right. A right without a remedy is not of much value. And under the current constitution, as I noted, the language provides for an adequate education and really doesn't give any power to children and families. Because it is a constitutional right and because we put children first, um, children and families will have a voice that they haven't had before. But most importantly, because it is the obligation of the state, that is to say, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, they all have a role because it is an obligation of the state to ensure quality public education and quality public schools that fulfill a child's fundamental right. If, in fact, a child's right isn't being fulfilled, they would have the the right to uh, seek legal redress, to uh, force change. And that's something that we don't have now. Thank you. And, 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 and I, I'm sorry, go ahead, Alan. I, I will just say we should not underestimate how important that is. And just to build on that, you know, we've been meeting with a lot of legislators in the Capitol to you know, encourage their support. And one of the pieces of pushback we get is legislators say, hey, we don't want the courts getting in our business. We want to control this. And who knows if a family takes, takes us to court, a court may impose a solution that we don't like. And we say, look, if you all do your jobs with the governor and make the changes that need to be changed, there's no reason for a family to go to court and there's no reason for a court to do anything. So it's a very powerful carrot stick encouragement to say enough is enough. We have to address these disparities. And you, you may not like the solution that the court imposes, but you're gonna get the first chance to make it right. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, um, you. If I can ask a follow-up on that, uh, Neil, you talked a little bit about the timeline and just the process of what comes next. If you can expand on that a little more and talk about what the, the timeline actually is when you're hoping this will be implemented. And can you also speak to the work that's been done to build a coalition around this? Who are some of the partners? Is it multi-sector? What does that look like? Yes, uh, we, were, uh, we announced this proposal that Justice Page and I've been working on for a year or more uh, in January, and we're working very hard with the legislature to try to get it on the ballot for this November, so two weeks from now. Then COVID hit and everything shut down and we had to press pause. So we're revamping that, or re turning that back on now and re-engaging with partners and stakeholders and legislators. One of the things that's really pleasing is that it's bipartisan. Right? There are many uh, legislators of color whose uh, constituents 
live in these communities. It's their kids that are directly affected. But there are also uh, conservative Republicans from greater Minnesota, because as I said, these are statewide gaps. Low-income white children in greater Minnesota are also badly trailing their middle-class peers. So it's a very unique partnership across party lines coming together to support this. Uh, Attorney General Ellison is supporting us, as is the business community with the Minnesota Business Partnership and the biggest companies in Minnesota. So these are strange bedfellows who are coming together who are all saying, enough is enough, we need to put children first. So we're now looking at either the upcoming, we've got basically two legislative sessions to get it on the November 2022 ballot. And Justice Page and I are doing everything we can to reach out and get the message out. Also, we're happy to hear that a, a bipartisan, independent of us, a bipartisan campaign committee has formed called Our Children Minnesota that is raising money, building a campaign, building a grassroots organization, uh, and people could also get involved that way uh, if they wanted to. So, so far, uh, we're really pleased with the feedback that we're getting. The biggest pushback, just to be jumped to it, we're getting is from people who are in power today. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about giving power to families that do not have power today. And there are people who are nervous about that because they're afraid that means I'm going to have to give up power. Well, uh, that's the conversation we need to have. Because my, for me, I think, especially after George Floyd's killing, this is a gut check moment. Are we finally serious about addressing these disparities or not? I hope the answer is yes. It's yes for me, it's yes for Alan. I hope the answer is yes for the state. And I would just noted that uh, uh, Neil talked about the coalition that we're building. An important piece of that coalition is children and families, giving them power bringing them to the table to have their voices heard because they're the ones that are impacted. They're the ones whose futures are on the line. And so we think it's, you know, as important as it is for Neil and I to be out there working to make this happen. It's, I think it's equally important to give power to children and families to have them working towards it also. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you both so much. Um, I know we have a uh, couple questions uh, coming up. One uh, is about uh, opposition to the amendment. Um, it, there's a question that says, I know that a number of people who also care about the education of all of our kids oppose this amendment. What are they concerned about? Where do we begin? <laughs> um, the, their stated concerns, and I, I, I put it that way because I don't think they're their real concerns. Their stated concerns are that this is really just a, a vehicle to uh, undermine public education and take us down the privatization road with vouchers. Um, and that's just simply not the case. If you look at the language of the proposed amendment and give the words to that language their ordinary and common meanings, I don't know how you can get privatizing public education out of it particularly in that last sentence where it says it is a paramount duty of the state to ensure quality public schools that fulfill that fundamental right. The state would have no higher duty, let me reemphasize that, no higher duty than to ensure quality public schools and public education. And I would just note that under the current constitution, if the legislature and the governor so decided, uh, the legislature passed and the governor uh, signed a bill that started us down the privatization of public education with vouchers, they can do that today. They can do that today. 
And yes, our provision doesn't prevent them from doing that, but it sets up a hurdle that I think uh, for all practical purposes prevents them. And that is if they do it under the current constitution, they can do it without worrying about public education. They can do it at the expense of public education. If they were to attempt to do it under our constitutional language, they could not do it at the expense of public education because public education has the highest of priorities. I would note that there are no other provisions in the Minnesota Constitution that make anything a paramount duty. So that uh, when I say the highest of duties, it is just that, the highest of duties. And so that's one of the, the things that uh, they talk about. The other is the uh, current language makes reference to uh, the legislature providing an education system uh, through taxation or otherwise. And our language doesn't mention the word taxation, but given the obligation to ensure quality public schools, and given that under our system of government here in Minnesota, funding begins in the legislature. The, the, the notion that somehow this is going to undermine funding is just, it, it's nonsense. It is simply nonsense. Um, trying to think of what, what are the other, they, they, they ask us what what, what does quality mean? Because there is this tendency to, it, it, as it relates to the, the provision with uh, uh, uniform achievement standards set forth by the state, there is this tendency to conflate the standards for measuring quality with quality itself. And there are those who are concerned that uh, this is really just a tool to reinforce uh, standardized tests. It's anything but that. Can I ask um, Justice Page and Neil to expand a little bit more on, so the funding piece, right? The way in which this amendment will actually address equal adequate funding to schools. And then if you can kind of define a little bit what adequate versus um, just the definition of quality and what those two differences are. I think we're getting a lot of questions on that and people want to know just a little more about what you're actually meaning by that. Well, I'll, I'll say one thing on the funding piece. If you look around the country, this is what's so, it doesn't make sense about the arguments that have been presented against it. Uh, and by the way, it's, don't just take Alan's word for it or my word for it. Attorney General Ellison has also said there's no way this leads to vouchers in private schools. So. I mean, unless they're, unless we've all been, you know, fooled, uh, I just think that's a silly argument because it says public education three times in three sentences. But if you look around the country and other states that have updated their constitutions and their court cases have been brought, those courts have ordered more funding for public education, not less. So if anything, this is a tool to get more funding for public education. But uh, as Alan was saying, if you look around, Minnesota's actually done a pretty good job equalizing funding around the state. For 30, 40 years ago, it was much more tied to property taxes in your neighborhood in terms of how your school was funded. Minnesota has gone very, has gone a long way towards equalizing that. And that's why the reason the word taxation is not in there in our proposal is because while money is important, it's not just about money. Money is a necessary ingredient, but it's not everything. And we want to make sure that the legislature and the executive branch and the judiciary consider all elements of what a child needs in order to be successful. If it's more money, great. If it's more flexibility for the teachers, great. If it's better transportation options, great. 
those should all be on the table. And then um, that so that's just a piece on funding. Alan, do you want to you want to talk more about you know quality? I, I think you addressed it. Uh, it. It really is the skills necessary, and this is the piece where teachers and parents would come together to decide what do they mean by quality. It's not going to be me and Alan defining that, but Alan, go ahead. Well, I would just before I get to that um, would note with respect to funding that I, if, if my life depended on it, I couldn't explain to you the mechanisms that we now use to determine how much goes to schools in our state budget. There is some Byzantine uh, system that, that has come about some formula. This amendment gives us the opportunity to take a long, hard look at how schools are funded. We don't prescribe how they should be funded, but it gives us the opportunity to take a long, hard look so that to the extent that there are districts that are underfunded, it gives us the opportunity to look at how we might go about ensuring that uh, their funding becomes, uh, meets what is needed. And again, the, the difference between quality and adequate, adequate goes to the system. Quality goes to whether a child is prepared. I think that's, that's as concise as I think I can make it. And, I, and one of the things that I worked uh, on as a judge, in, in the, at least in the, the judges that I know, uh, when we look at words, we don't get to create their meanings. Words, words are important, but they have meaning. And if you look at the, 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 the language, the, the plain and clear language of our proposed amendment, you don't have to guess at what those words mean. If you, if you look at them, I mean, they literally mean what they say. Thank you, Justice Page. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was I was just going to say, you know, you look at the uh, current language, and you have to work to see how those words relate to each other and work together. Our proposed amendment, you don't. I feel, thank you. I feel like the, you mentioned it in there, but I wanted to go back to the metrics question um, about uh, measuring that. And I thought I heard you say something about others deciding on that, uh, but can you expound on that just a little bit more? And as a follow-up to that, um, I do have another question that'll come up, but uh, if you can expound on the metrics uh, section of the, the question of like, how will this quality be measured? I think some folks had, we had a number of questions about that. Well, I, I, I think educators, uh, politicians, families will come together and sort out what that measurement tool will be. Excellent. So it's not something that the, uh, the amendment itself would, would it, try to specify. It, it doesn't try to set it because, as Neil pointed out, one size does not necessarily fit all. Great. And and I also, oh, go ahead. One quick thing, which is the reason why it, it says uniform achievement standards is because we don't want different students to have different sets of expectations. Like right now, let me just be direct. Right now, the best data, the data that the state points to and says we're making progress is they're closing graduation gaps between African-American children and white children, Hispanic children and white children. And they're saying, see, we're doing it. But if you look at other measures of readiness, for example, of college or career, 
we're not making any progress. So that implies we're graduating students that are not ready. You know, we could pretend that this problem goes away by just graduating everybody tomorrow. And what would we be doing? We'd have, we'd have different expectations for different groups of students. And we wanna make sure that doesn't happen because all children have the capability to learn. And we want all children to be prepared to their full potential. Not every child is gonna be a master scientist, okay? Not every child is gonna study calculus, that's fine. But each child should have the preparation to reach their full potential. And that's what this amendment codifies in the constitution. Excellent, thank you both. As a follow-up, sort of talking about this quality, what the, the meaning of quality is, uh, we have a question that says, do you believe that Minnesota's current achievement standards sufficiently capture the skills necessary for participation in the economy, our democracy, and society? Or are they too narrowly focused on Eurocentric academic knowledge? Well, I think, no, we definitely don't think that the current standards are the right long-term standards. That's why to us, amending the constitution starts a process by which quality and by which the new sets of standards need to be defined by families and teachers and parents coming together to decide that. Uh, again, Alan pointed out, neither of us are educators. We don't want to impose what we think the right answer should be. We simply want to set it in the constitution that this should be our highest priority the education of all children in Minnesota. And I, I would just add, you know, for me, again, noting that I'm not an educator, what is important is that we teach children how to think and how to think critically. And if we can teach children how to think critically, they can figure out the things they either want to know or need to know, they can figure those things out. But if we don't, if we, whatever the vehicle, if we don't teach them to think critically, and I think that's where our failure is, if we don't teach them to think critically, then it doesn't much matter what they're being taught. And do, and, and do I think it would, it's, it's important to, uh, in the educational process, to be accurate in terms of history, in terms of uh, how our country has gotten to where it is today? I think that's absolutely critical because otherwise we're not telling the truth and we're not teaching children uh, who we are. And so I, I think that's important. Do I think it's important that um, individual cultures are represented in the educational space? Yes, because we're all in that space. And the only way we get to know each other and to understand and, and relate to each other is by learning about and hearing about. But at the end of the day, if we don't teach children how to think and think critically, then uh, we've done a disservice to everybody. Thank you. I want to pivot a little bit into the mechanics of the proposed language and in the proposed language that you have, you talk about the role of the state and it sounds like they'll have a pretty big role in bringing together those partners to help define what some of these things mean. I'm wondering if you can talk about who is going to hold the state accountable and what that looks like and how you've considered that in drafting this language. I think at the bottom, the bottom line is at the end of the day, the judicial branch will hold folks accountable to the extent that they don't uh, hold up their end of the, hold up to their obligations. You know, one of the things um, that people have asked us related to this point is, well, maybe only wealthy families will be able to bring a case Right. And that's, you know, maybe you could talk about the history of civil rights and, and is it the wealthy that are bringing these cases or the or low income families? Well, 
you just go back to Brown versus the Board of Education. It was not wealthy families who uh, were the uh, plaintiffs in Brown. You go back in Minnesota's history into the, the, the educational funding cases that have been brought here in Minnesota. It has not been wealthy families, it has been poor families. But it, independent of who brings the claims, if a court establishes a principle as to what constitutes, um, you know, a proper measurement tool, what constitutes or how the, the standards get uh, analyzed, all of that. Those decisions will benefit all children. When you think about uh, Brown, its impact went far beyond the, the individual plaintiffs went far beyond even the subject the, the subject matter of, of separate but equal in terms of education. It opened up and ultimately resulted in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 60, 65. Um, and when you think of their impact, the uh, its impact on ending segregation in housing. Um, and, and, and yes, we haven't been perfect in ending segregation and discrimination in, in all of these areas, but we have made uh, a fair amount of progress from when I was a child. Um, if, if, if those of you who are younger than me were transported back to 1955, um, you would be shocked at the world that I grew up in. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I just want to say, I think many of us on this call today really admire your framing that education is a fundamental civil right. And so really appreciate that. I think there are still some concerns though that this might not be enough. So I'm wondering if either of you can speak to, you know, what is needed beyond this amendment, whether legislatively, to really impact the persistent education gaps and inequities that we see in our state. Well, if you look at other states that have uh, updated their constitutions, a great example is Florida. In the late 90s, the people of Florida uh, amended their constitution to make quality a right and then they elected a governor and they elected legislators for whom education was their priority and they made sweeping changes. I mean, they did, they shrunk class sizes, they did more funding, they did more accountability, more information for parents so they could choose the right neighborhood school, a lot of different things. And Florida, if I'm remembering, Florida and Minnesota in 2000 were both around 35th on some dimensions out of 50 states in terms of success. Of, of gaps and whatnot. So we were pretty low, we were both pretty low. In the last 20 years, Minnesota is still 35th and Florida is now sixth. So in not a long time, they made big gains through the various changes that they've implemented. Now we're not saying, hey, Minnesota do exactly what Florida did, but we're saying, let's start by, by all agreeing that this is our highest priority. And we really mean it, it's not just words. So we're gonna put it in the constitution because that's going to allow the public to hold us accountable for actually achieving these outcomes. And then it may well be that the parents and the teachers and the representatives get together and say, yeah, we want to shrink class sizes. We want to give parents more supports, any number of reforms that, you know, Alan and I may have our own wish list of things that we prefer, but we'd rather leave that in the hands of the experts to decide what are the policies that make sense. And by the way, kids in, a greater Minnesota in a rural community might need different tools than kids in Minneapolis or in St. Paul. Let those teachers and those parents determine that rather than one size fits all for everybody. And I, I would I would add once this amendment gets passed, that's when the real work begins. And that 
all of us here in this conversation today, um, that's when we really have to go to work to make sure that we give meaning to ending uh, racism in the system so that the system changes so that we don't just continue to talk about what we're doing and changing things around the edges. I mean, we need fundamental systemic change. We can't expect that things are going to get better if we continue to do what we're doing today. And I, I, I believe that our proposed amendment is the catalyst for that, the catalyst for all of us to go to work. And I would, I would note that, you know, this, our, the language in our proposed amendment is the best that we could come up with. If somebody has something that will make our language better, we are open to that. Because this isn't about us. This isn't about um, anything other than creating that catalyst so that change actually happens. So that we're not having the same conversation 10, 15, 20 years from now, as we have been for the past uh, 10, 20, or 30 years. Thank you. Um, I know we're running short on time, but I have one last quick follow-up that I think is important. Can you speak to kind of what inspired you to go towards a constitutional amendment? Did you see other states that have done this well, and what were their outcomes of that? So just really curious of how you got to this point and who else is doing this? Well, for, for me, um, as, I, as I set out in the beginning, for me, this is about justice. And if we are going to have education justice, we need to change the system. We have, uh, I think, systemic failure that has gotten us to this point. And that systemic failure is grounded in the constitutional language that we've had since 1857. And so for me, uh, using the law, creating power for children and families, giving them a remedy for when uh, their rights are, are not being vindicated. For me, that's how we make change. And that, that this was the most powerful tool uh, that I could see that could bring about that change. And, and I would just quickly add that um... I'm getting a message, my internet's unstable, so I apologize if I get dropped here. Uh, the fact that the people who are opposed to this are the people who are in power today tells me we got it right. Mm -hmm.